Welcome to the Meaningful Work Matters podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Soren, founder of Eudaimonic by Design. On this podcast, we'll dive into the world of meaningful work, explore its complexities, and examine its impact on people and the organizations they're a part of. Each episode features insightful conversations with cutting-edge experts who are successfully navigating the challenges of meaningful work. We hope to offer you ideas, frameworks, and tools to unlock potential and design work that's fulfilling, impactful, and supports everyone's well-being. Subscribe or follow us now, and let's make meaningful work matter. This episode features Dr. Kim Cameron, one of the founders of Positive Organizational Scholarship and a faculty member at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. We'll hear all about Kim's pioneering work on virtuous organizations and their impact on bottom line performance and worker well-being. Kim, thank you so much for joining us on this Meaningful Work Matters podcast. It is a pleasure to have you. I was uh, I was just mentioning that I have been a huge fan of your work for a decade now since I first learned about the work that you do and, of course, the Center for Positive Organizational Scholarship at the University of Michigan. Um, Kim, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Andrew, I, uh, vice versa, I shouldn't uh, follow up by saying, oh, well, I feel the same about you, but I do. Oh, my gosh. I have been very, very impressed. And the latest article you wrote and published on meaningful work, oh, goodness, it's, I mentioned it's the best article I've ever seen on that topic. Wow. Most comprehensive, lays out the issues in such a wonderful way. So it's really a delight. I'm really serious. It's a delight to be with you. If you could see me, you'd see me blushing right now. Thank you very much for <laughs> all of that, all of that praise. Tell us who who are you, Kim Cameron? Will you just give us a little bit of a of a, of a nutshell as to as to what you do and also what your relationship to meaningful work is? I'm on the faculty at the University of Michigan. Have been for a couple of decades, long time. I'm in the business school. I'm a business school faculty member. And one of the reasons that I'm so interested in being involved in the International Positive Psychology Association is because positive psychology sort of subsumed the word is institutions, positive institutions. But very few folks were doing research on actually organizations or institutions as entities. A lot of focus on what people do when they're a member of an institution, but not the institution itself. So that's been the focus of my work and our work here. And I just feel like it was important to make sure that rounds out this field of positive psychology. Anyway, that's my work is focusing on how this all applies when bottom line impact uh, is being measured and held accountable for. So. I'm sort of interested in that kind of that, that that domain. Well, one of the things that you have certainly been a founder of is this whole entire field of work called positive organizational scholarship, and that that is indeed um, what the University of uh, of Michigan and, and the Ross School of Business, in particular, is um, is famous for having uh, um, institutionalized. To use your word, um, can you just tell us a little bit about what positive organizational scholarship is? Three things. One is positively deviant organization performance. What does that mean? That means organizations that are extraordinary, spectacular, do far, far better than anybody else. And in fact, in some cases, 
almost beyond understanding. Uh, one CEO of an organization who asked us to come in and help him change his culture to become more positive said, this was originally, so I, this is a, nearly a quotation. It's not exactly, but he said, this was originally seen as just being positive smiles. But it occurred to me pretty soon that this was a lot more than just a set of activities. It was changing our culture, changing our strategy, and so on. He said, our goal is to have our customers and employees consider us to be well above average in all the technical aspects of our business, but then performing above all understanding. That's his phrase. That is, we're so good, nobody can understand how in the world we got there. Positively deviant is is deviant. It's not the norm, but it's on the positive side. In English, normally the word deviance has a negative connotation, but it's on the positive side. It's spectacular, extraordinary, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the implications of this notion of positive organization scholarship, the studying how you measure that, how you recognize it, how you'd ever foster it. Another has to do with uh, all the attributes that you consider, and it's things you know so much about, Andrew, and that is all the things you consider when you think about a, a workforce, a set of organization, a set of organization members, employees who are flourishing. Uh, sort of, sort of like I, I'm doing better than I thought I could do because I'm here. The culture's different, the change, the leadership's different, and so on. It's a, so it's a study of that sort of phenomenon. And then a third connotation has to do with what you know so much about, has to do with the best of the human condition, eudaimonism, or I've used the word virtuousness. So in other words, the, the idea of virtuousness means the best of the human condition. When we're at our peak, we're in a virtuous state. Virtuosos in music are the most inspiring performers. And the virtuosity in art is the most uplifting, elevating, the you know, the most inspiring art. So virtuousness in organizations has a similar connotation. We just study that. What does that mean? How would you ever measure it? What is the impact and so on? Those are, those are things that I'd like for us to dive right into. Before we do, I just want to, I want to acknowledge the fact that that this idea of positive deviance is probably one of the most gestalt changing ideas that I have encountered within this, the realm of positive psychology. I think that we spend so much time, especially in organizational settings, thinking about distribution curves. Negativity bias always has us focus, almost always has us focused on what's wrong and how to fix it, focusing on the bottom end of the curve. And especially that's true for those of us who work in in human resources and talent management. We spend so much time thinking about those who are underperforming and what we need to be able to do. Um, And it's shocking how little time, other than just giving a high five and maybe a bonus to the people who are just hitting it out of the park in extraordinary ways. And to think about studying them, to thinking about deconstructing what is going ridiculously right, not just a little right, but outstandingly right. And how can we pull that apart and use that to be able to shift everybody over is really a catastrophically big idea. I love it. It gets me out of bed every morning. It's the kind of thing that for the last 20 years or so, we've been trying to understand, try to measure, trying to figure out the impact and so on. Just And boy, I tell you what, Andrew, there's so much more work to be done 
I mean, we're scratching the surface. Periodically, I'll have somebody ask me a question, and the answer is, nobody knows yet. I mean, how long does it take to have this occur in an organization? You know, we don't know yet. Well, let's let's dive into this notion right. of a virtuous organization. What is a virtuous organization? How do you think that relates to this idea of meaningful work? I, I'm going to show my naivete because I don't rely on uh, or haven't in my own research. I haven't relied on Aristotle and others. But virtuous, the way I've operationalized or measured virtuousness is simply on the basis of the kinds of practices that occur in organizations that help people flourish. So there are eight dimensions that I measure. The list that I've measured, as it turns out, is very predictive of bottom line performance. And when I mean that, when I say that, I mean profitability, productivity, quality, innovation, customer satisfaction, employee retention, all of those things go up. They all have to do with the extent to which the organization itself has implemented or has institutionalized these practices. It's not just a single person, but the organization itself demonstrates them. And one of them, of course, is gratitude and appreciation. People feel like I'm appreciated. There are gratitude practices just embedded. That's what we do every day here. Dignity and respect is another extent to which I, you know, it's a dignified, respectful environment. The third has to do with support and compassion, or in other words, the extent to which when people are in pain or struggling and having difficult time, there is a compassionate, empathetic culture and a system that boosts them. Another has to do with caring and concern, which is similar, but it has to do with the extent to which I feel valued. Uh, Gallup has talked about this as engaged. I feel like I'm you know, important enough to have an impact in this organization. Another is, as you mentioned, uh, and you focus your time on, meaningfulness and purpose, having a profound purpose. The organization itself makes it uh, obvious that we have something more valuable than just creating a widget or getting a paycheck or, or something. There is something profoundly important. Another is uh, that has to do with positively energizing or inspirational activities. Positive energy is essentially defined as the extent to which my actions help other people dream more, do more, become more, learn more, that is, flourish more than they would have otherwise. And I'm elevated by all that. Next to last, forgiveness, understanding. I don't hold grudges. I learn from mistakes. The organization itself makes mistakes, but everybody's better because that occurred. And it's what we, you know, we forgive the difficulties. And then the final one, there's not the final one, but another one, the eighth one is trust and integrity. So I measure those eight dimensions. And when organizations score high, bingo, outcomes score <laughs> high. Uh, or or they in some cases, five times industry average, for heaven's sake, in terms mm -hmm. The stuff that people are held accountable for. So that's the way I operationalize virtuousness. Can you tell us a little bit how you arrived at those eight? For 10 years or so in my career, I was studying organizational downsizing. I happened to be running a research center where the charge was to study colleges and universities. And in the United States, the baby boomer population after World War II had gone through the education system and their children had gone through the education system so that in the United States, there was going to be 400,000 fewer students in the coming decade than there had been. 
if you spread that 400,000 students across colleges and universities, you end up with about a third of them going out of business. So almost the pressure was enormous to consolidate, retrench, downsize, and so on. So that's what I was studying. Well, as it turns out, no surprise, after a decade, it was very clear that most organizations that downsize deteriorate in performance. I mean, 80 to 90% of organizations deteriorated. But that left 10 or 15% that didn't, that flourished after downsizing. I didn't have data, but I began developing a very clear uh, impression that the difference between the few that got better and everybody else that didn't had to do with a variety of practices that I referred at the time to virtuousness. I mean, it was, you know, compassion and kindness and generosity and trust and forgiveness and so on. That's the way that emerged. I think that this work in virtuous downsizing is, um, is extraordinary. Uh, and I think it's extraordinary because, you know, just about anybody who's listening to this call who has experienced working in an organization probably is part of the 85 or 80, 88% that doesn't do downsizing very well. And for whom the idea that, that downsizing could be virtuous, could be eudaimonic, could be human, just is an idea that almost breaks your head. It's it's like how how does that even happen? So so can you use those eight factors that you describe, those eight practices to to bring it to life? What what would it look like to do downsizing in a virtuous way? Well, let me give you a couple of stories um, of organizations. One of the most inspiring stories I know about is a is a story of a hospital in Derby, Connecticut. Well, they were struggling and uh, having a very, very difficult time. Turns out the CEO and the president ended up firing the director of operations. And that created a real revolution in the organization because people essentially said, wait a minute, you've just fired the best leader we have in this company. So they sort of demanded that he come back. Uh, the president and CEO didn't response. So they one day crashed the board meeting. They literally walked in unannounced, demanding that they hire back. The guy's name is Pat Charmel. And uh, and he said, and by the way, since these two guys were the ones that fired him, you had to get rid of them instead. The board caved in and did exactly that. They hired back Pat Charmel, fired the president and CEO, and gave Pat both titles. Uh, one of and one of the first things he did is he did a, sur- did a survey of the his marketplace about the various impressions of the of you know various departments within the hospital. Some people said I will drive hours to avoid Griffin Hospital because I just I, I you know it's terrible it's a terrible hospital and in particular the OBGYN the, having babies you're going to have a baby I'll go someplace else to have a baby so that's what Pat tackled first. Now, problem is that they also, or he, he discovered within a couple of months that this present CEO had been fiscally irresponsible, and they literally were either going to go bankrupt or he's going to have to downsize, lay people off. And the trouble is he, had, he was going to have to lay off some of the very people who had campaigned for him to come back. I mean, his advocates. What happened is he, he did a number of things. 
And that downsizing uh, activity, he simply treated these people like, look, I love you. I want this to be a success for you and for us. And so, in a, as, as you might expect, Griffin Hospital just flourished. And he downsized, saved the organization, and then they just flourished. And in fact, more recently with the pandemic, he's still there. They became the hospital that, even though they, had, especially at the very beginning, didn't make money, they created COVID testing units and bought trucks and went out to vulnerable populations, like, for example, in prisons, extended care facilities, in uh, uh, places where people couldn't get a test. They went out and tested them and took out took vac- uh, vaccination teams and and so on. I mean, they did, they're doing all kinds of things that you'd say to yourself, gee, that's interesting. And even though you're not making money, it's a virtuous activity. I'm trying to help other people flourish. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there's so much about about that story and the, the, the Griffin Hospital story that's about true listening. But there's also, I think, a story that I'm curious about, which is you're also describing a leader that um, that is thinking about risk in different mm-hmm. ways. I can imagine, especially in a hospital context, so many of those choices being choices that fly in the face of potentially what lawyers might want uh, that organization to do. So especially in a downsizing context, even just being transparent about what you're doing and when you're going to do it and trying to involve people, it seems like it might be just an impossible feat. How how do these virtuous organizations get beyond that fear of uh yeah risk? It takes it takes courageous leadership. That's another dimension I don't measure, but what I think uh, that I've observed is that there needs to be unequivocal support from the top. People have to say, all right, we're willing to do this. But it can't be just a top-down change. I just can't say, we're going to now do this. This is an order. You will do X and Y. So what we've tried to do when we intervene in organizations frequently is to do both of those. That is, try to get the folks at the top to support but take it off their shoulders as being responsible for doing it. And I'll give you uh, an example of a, of a real organization. University of Michigan, as an example, the business and finance group, 3,000 employees, uh, they're in charge. They have employees that literally go from bus drivers and people are working in, on pipes under the, re- under the street through HR to people managing a billion-dollar portfolio, you know, financial management kind of folks. So white-collar to blue-collar, big difference in salaries and so on. Well, they decided the CEO, I mean, the person in charge of that, he was exactly the executive vice president and the CFO for the university, said, come help us. So uh, we spent probably uh, the equivalent of a day and a half with the senior team the folks who were running all those different departments, providing empirical evidence that this actually works. And then we said, what we want you to do is identify the positive energizers in your areas of responsibility. What's a positive energizer? It's a person who just lights up the room. It's a person who helps other people flourish. It's a person who has the sort of electricity that, you know, I feel great. I'm, you know, I'm energized around you. Well, in that organization, they, in, they identified 68 people 
that they said, you're positive energizers. We spent a day with that group helping them understand there's probably 40 different practices. And what we'd like to have you do, we gave them what's called a 90 in 90 challenge. We want you to infect 90% of the rest of this organization. And you want, we want you to do it in 90 days. Turns out <clears throat> they talk, they said, okay, now look, we didn't, there was no script. There was no, you got to do these five things. The only, the only, uh, have to probably was that you got to report in every week. Just to let us know what you're doing. We had a person who was kind of the clearinghouse. She in turn just published those in a memo every week. Here's the stuff that's going on. And what, what kind of things were going on? Everything from tiny little things. Like I'm bringing flowers in and putting them on the entryway, you know, where people show up. Or we're holding uh, at noontime, we're holding on Mondays, we're all going to get together and exercise or do yoga. And on Friday, we're going to do watch movies. I don't stuff like that through the reward system. We're going to change the way reward system. One person said, for example, in my unit, when somebody does something well and and does uh, deserves a reward, the reward is often a certificate or it's a pen or it's a, you know, a, a stuffed animal on your desk, or, you know, stuff like that. She said, I've decided to give, if, if you do well, I'm going to give you two of those, one for you, and then you can give the other one to somebody else you know about. Anyway, I mean, there were probably, I don't know, 75 unique practices that they just really innovative, interesting things that they came up with. Well, about two thirds of the way through that system, the pandemic, the pandemic hit. Here comes COVID. So now people aren't showing up. The bus drivers have to come. The, pe- the pipe fitters have to come. But the guys who are running the, you know, the investment portfolio don't have to come. So lots of things. And the assumption was, boy, this is going to just kibosh the entire, the entire event or the entire, entire activity. They measured before measured after on, I don't know, uh, a dozen dimensions of what they were carrying, what they were concerned about. I think it was 17 dimensions. I don't remember for sure. Anyway, at the end of the 90 days, and then finally at the end of the pandemic, they looked at the scores. Some of those scores were increased by double digits, and everything was better, even in the most difficult circumstances that you could fashion for themselves this pandemic you know they assumed oh goodness it's going to suck the life right out of us didn't do it so i mean that's one of a whole bunch of others but one of the magical parts of that i think was mobilizing 68 folks who are carrying the responsibility to change the entire organization which they did yeah it reminds me of um of this idea that that you can start a wave you don't need you don't need an entire population to be able to start a wave in a stadium. You only need, I think, the stat is something like twenty four point seven percent of your population <laughs> to be to be willing to to make the stand. But as soon as you do, you know, as soon as you can start to mobilize a coalition of the willing, extraordinary mm-hmm. things are possible. I love that. Are there dark sides to virtuous organizations? I mean, we we know that there's dark sides of meaningful work, that people can become too attached. There can be what Bob Valoran would describe as obsessive passion, that that can ultimately lead to just the erosion of boundaries, to increase stress, to eventually burnout and regret and all sorts of things. Can, Can there be too much virtuosity in an organization? 
virtuousness is the is what we what we uh, strive for. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's the ultimate. If I could be a one hundred percent virtuous person, I would say, all right, I've done what I aspire. That's the best thing I can aspire. On the other hand, I know, as you've pointed out in your wonderful article, by the way, regarding meaningfulness, uh, it's easy to have people take advantage of that. So there's certainly a certain, uh, there has to be a certain kind of protection, has to be a certain awareness that um, even though I'm trying to help you get better, if you're uh, throwing spears at me, I got to, I got to avoid the spears, you know. (laughs) It's very much in line of what I think Aristotle probably would have articulated in terms of of what virtuousness is all about. And he was writing about virtuousness in the context of reflecting on what ethics was and hmm. should be potentially in society. I'm curious, just on on the on the topic of ethics, how how have you seen ethics play a role in the most virtuous yeah. organizations you've studied? It's it's a wonderful question, and I don't I'm I'm not an ethicist, but for the most part, um, ethics is defined as doing no harm. If I'm unethical, I've, I've harmed somebody. I've done something wrong. I mean, if I'm ethical, that means I, it's absent harm. I haven't done anything wrong. That's on a continuum. I would put unethical on one end of the continuum. Ethical in the middle, virtuousness on the other end. Hmm. That is... I'm not only not doing harm, I'm doing extraordinarily, uh, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm helping. I'm flourishing. I'm, you know, I'm exceeding expectations. I'm helping the system and the organization achieve, uh, you know, eudemonism. You, you know this more than anybody. So, uh, ethics for me is uh, you, ha- you have to pay attention to problems and issues and ethics. You have to make sure you're not doing harm. You have to make sure that you you handle and and uh, uh, mitigate the unethical uh, issues that always arise. But the aspiration is to get on the right hand side of that continuum. How, what would you say to inspire them to get to that right hand side of the spectrum? My personal bias, and it is a bias, is toward empirical evidence that makes the case that it actually pays off. I've had a lot of folks say to me, literally everything from uh, army generals to executives to attorneys, NBA basketball coaches, and so on, who've said, look, Cameron, this positivity stuff is frankly just a deflection. I mean, look, I got bottom line impact that I got to pay attention to. I got wins I got in athletics. I got stock price. I got profitability goals. I got customer satisfaction targets. I mean, if you could show me this has any implication for bottom line results, I might pay attention. Otherwise, they call it toxic positivity. I mean, just happyology for heaven's sake. It's a deflection and it's in my way. So for the last 20 years or so, I've been trying to address that question. Does it actually make a difference in things for which you're held accountable? And the answer unequivocally is yes. For me, the motive when I almost always I try, first of all, to say there's evidence and here it is, that this will work. And then let's talk about how it will work in your place or in your with your outcomes in mind and so on and so on. (laughs) If people wanted to know 
more about what that business case is. People wanted to know more about uh, about those policies and practices of, of positively deviant virtuous organizations. Where can they go to learn about it? So, you know, I've written some books that are available that have to do with positive leadership and positively energizing leadership and so on. But maybe the very best place is a website associated with the center that we've created at Michigan. It's called the Center for Positive Organizations. That's intended to be kind of a clearinghouse of what we know. So there literally are videos, 20 years of videos of various experts in positive leadership, some of them practitioners, some academics. That's there. There are, there are course syllabi, syllabi there. There are uh, all kinds of support materials and a bunch of academic uh, activities as well. And then a, a whole listing of a bunch of people who, uh, hundreds literally, who label themselves as positive organization scholars. So that's kind of a place to start. It is an extraordinary research resource. I can I can say, having been a frequent visitor there over the years, um, there's so much extraordinary material that you have been able to amass there. There's wonderful interventions that the Center for Positive Organizational Scholarship has been co-authors of that you make available there. There's 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 amazing groups that you can potentially um, become part of that um, that that are all connected to the Ross School of Business and the Center for Positive Organizational Scholarship. I really encourage people to to go there, to check it out, and to get um, some of Kim's books. They are just chock full of inspiration, storytelling, and the kind of wisdom that you've been able to share with us today. Kim, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Andrew. You're a hero. You are a hero. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Meaningful Work Matters. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. And if this episode resonated with you, please take a moment to leave us a review. Your feedback helps us make this podcast better and reach more listeners. You can connect with me, Andrew Soren, on LinkedIn or visit www.eubd.ca to learn more about Eudaimonic by Design. Finally, if what you heard today spoke to you, tell your colleagues and people in your community about our podcast. We really appreciate your support in making meaningful work matter. See you next time.